The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, very good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this hour. U.S. CPI expectations ease, according to a key Fed survey ahead of today's August print, with inflation seen slowing to 8%. U.S. equities extend the rebound rally, closing higher for the fourth straight session, with energy stocks leading the charge. In corporate news, uh, Swiss lender UBS hikes its annual dividend by 10% and announces share buybacks will top $5 billion this year. Plus, Goldman Sachs resumes an annual tradition and plans to cut hundreds of jobs this month, according to a CNBC source, as bank cuts expenses, as the bank cuts expenses amid a collapse in deal volumes. And Twitter shareholders reportedly voted in favor of Elon Musk's $44 billion takeover as the billionaire tries to force his way out of the deal. So very good morning, everybody. U.S. consumer inflation expectations eased again in August, according to the New York Fed survey. American consumers see inflation at 5.7% over the next 12 months. That is the lowest rate since October 2021 and down from 6.2% in July. Today's inflation print is expected to show U.S. CPI rising by 8% year on year, according to the Dow Jones forecast. However, price pressures are expected to ease on a monthly basis, falling by 0.1% in August as against July. Well, despite the forecasts, many investors still see the Fed delivering a third consecutive 75 basis point hike at its meeting next week. The Fed chair, Jerome Powell, has previously said his goal is to, quote, get wages down and then inflation down. Nomi Prince says uh, loose Fed policy has created a permanent distortion between markets and the real economy, a concept she's developed into a new book due in October. She joins the conversation now. Nobi, welcome to the programme. Very good to have you uh, back with us on CNBC. Let me just start by asking you whether you think the Fed is making another historic mistake at this point by cranking up inflation as it has been 75 basis points a month. Yeah, I, I do. I, I think the Fed tends to be usually overdramatic and late to the policies that it's basically directed at the economy and at the markets in particular, uh, really since the financial crisis 2008 amplified um, in the pandemic period of 2020. And, and this period of um, accelerating the rate hikes that we've seen so far has impacted the real economy because it has squeezed the borrowing costs for, or basically increased, but squeezed borrowing um, alternatives for real people, um, for real consumers, whereas for the street in general, 
historically money still remains cheap and leverage still remains high in the system and the Fed's book still remains um, just a touch under nine trillion dollars which is double what it was going into the pandemic period and and, and since the financial crisis of, of 2008 so so we have this con complex set of conditions which increases the expectations that the Fed will raise rates by 75 basis points this next meeting. I think they're actually going to come back from that and pivot in three stages. One will be to reduce the rate hike acceleration to 50 basis points, then to neutralize it. And then eventually, because the economy in the States is now in two periods of GDP growth of basically negative to flat, and I think that will continue um, to go back the other way and, and to start to become accommodative, whether that is to cut rates or to increase the size of its book again, that still remains to be seen. Well, one of the challenges the Fed has at the moment, and I think we all have uh, working around financial markets and the macroeconomic picture, is just understanding what is really going on in the global economy in the wake of uh, several years of COVID-related lockdowns and then a um, uh, uh, a continuing approach to COVID in China that means that we get supply chain distortions and, of course, supply chain generated inflationary pressures. Is there any sense in which you're willing to cut the Fed a bit of slack at this point? Because we're all, to a certain extent, fumbling around in the dark trying to figure out what happens next. Well, I, I think you and I can say that, that we are and, and consumers can say that, that you know, they, they feel this and particularly with energy prices still so high, even though they might um, touch back down a bit in this next CPI reading because gas prices have um, come down a bit since their highs over the last couple months. Um, but at the same time, we know this data is there. The Fed has um, effectively a, a 12 uh, component system, that's the Federal Reserve System, and, and a number of those different Feds actually um, compute some of this data on a daily basis. They don't, they don't even wait month to month. So some of the figures that go into CPI, some of the figures that go into inflation now, which the Atlanta Fed um, basically forecasts on a daily basis, those things are, are informational points that the Fed should know. So this supply chain problem and, and the post-COVID disruptions that China, you know, as you mentioned, are still in, um, this, is, this is very much a part of, of real inflation. It's a part of energy inflation. It's a part of energy then impacting food inflation. It's a pat, you know, for fertilizer inflation. And of course, um, what's gone on in the Ukraine with respect to Russia and the Ukraine, that has also impacted more recently this year um, prices. And so that that's what's happening really in the economy. What the Fed is trying to do is target wage inflation. And the reality is that wages have not kept up with that overall inflation that has been basically increased by all of these other factors. So when the Fed is pointing, as it did in the last um, at, at, at Jackson Hole, um, in the last sort of meeting of all of the central bank leaders with, with uh, Jerome Powell leading that, that speech, um, he basically suggested that wage pressure has to come down. But again, that's not at the level of inflation. And so I think the Fed absolutely is missing this connection between what is going on for real people in the real economy and why and how that relates to the overall inflation picture, which it is basically positioned itself to to fight. There, there, there's just a mismatch here. 
Now, I want to unravel another theme in the book, this uh, great polarisation in society, and we've been covering it for many years, the amount of newly minted millionaires and billionaires, and you point out that uh, you call it, what, the, the mega-rich versus the never-rich. And it's an important theme, I think, because we've already seen two different gears in the economy already, the slowdown for some people as they've weighed up the cost of living and energy prices that are already biting versus others where it's just not even touching the sides, and you're still seeing an extravagant amount of spending taking place. And this is important as we talk about central banks trying to really take some demand out of the system. Will it work this time? Because it does feel like we've got two parts of society. Well, I, I, this is very much why I call it a permanent distortion, because just because central banks um, and not the People's Bank of China, so it's not even all central banks, have adopted um, this raising of rates um, to supposedly fight inflation over the last six months. The, the reality is that this, this dichotomy, this chasm between those that leverage themselves into the market when prices um, were lower, but money was also quite um, a bit cheaper, as well as institutional money from a private equity standpoint, a hedge fund standpoint, all of this basically amassed into um, a bubble of a set of markets, the stock market, the housing market, the debt markets were time highs of debt around the world everywhere. Um, and a lot of that debt, of course, is de de dollar denominated. And, and that's going to impact um, as the dollar has remained so strong, um, nations throughout the world and people within those nations um, being able to, to keep themselves afloat relative to the growth of their economies. We have seen ec economic growth slow down and expectations are that economic growth, real economic growth will continue to slow down. And what that does is that creates a larger gap between those people living in the real economy and those institutions and individuals who are still floating on uh, cheap money that's either been amassed is already in the market or is on the sidelines, um, which a lot of it is at this particular moment, given the more recent volatility, um, specifically about rates and inflation, ready to come back into the market. And, and all of that creates this, this permanently distorted um, field between the real economy and the financial system, the financial markets, the banking system. And so just by raising rates um, back to still a very low historical level doesn't necessarily change that availability and that basically 15 years of availability of a very cheap money that is already booing the markets and that therefore distorts even the transparency of what certain companies or commodities are really worth in the markets relative to the real economy. So that gap will continue to grow. And, and just I mentioned food before. Um, th that's something that, that's real. I mean, we, we have all-time sort of food poverty levels. We have fuel poverty happening. I mean, these are things that are real, that real people feel. They're not felt um, anywhere near dollar for dollar, pound for pound, euro for euro uh, at, at the richer levels of, of society and of institutions. You're talking a lot here about the big picture, but if I can just bridge the gap to what a lot of traders and investors are looking at, and that's very fast-moving expectations around interest rates. You just think from the start of the month, we moved very aggressively from those expecting uh, 75 basis points. We're at, what, 57% at the start of the month to about 91% now in expectations for a 75 basis point move. And same story, too, as we take a look at the longer-term view for this year, 3.75% if you look at the odds on that. But we were at 45% last week in the market. Now we're at 90 so a lot of scrambling to catch up. What do you make of this sort of volatility and, and sentiment where investors are just on the wrong page and having to jump back in and quickly trade around some of the positions? Well, I think that that's a lot of, of, um, of a reason why uh, the, the, what the Fed says 
um, really is impacting globally what's going on in the markets, what's going on for traders, because what's what's happening is there'll be a Fed meeting, there'll be announcements, and then there'll be this sort of analysis of those announcements. And then there'll be, but wait a minute, new numbers are going to come out and they might show that inflation has dipped to, let's say, CPI uh, at 8% or lower than 7.9%, let's say, in headline inflation. Um, and now what does that mean? And so what we're seeing is these sort of mini bubbles into um, the Fed's statements, um, like we've seen in the in the past week, um, and, and also throughout the world as a knock-on impact from what the Fed is doing and, and what other central banks are doing in response. Um, and then we see that expectation um, of, of higher rates go up, and then we see it abate, and then we see it go up right into the meeting again. So there's this sort of mini um, trend or mini pattern that's been behaving um, as basically similarly throughout these, these, these past months. So I think that's what's ultimately also contributing to the volatility in the markets and this, this movement in expectations from 50 to 90, from 40 to 85 and so forth um, between after the Fed speaks and sort of dies Nemi. down a bit, we see some numbers to going into the next uh, meeting and the next statement. Nomi, uh, good morning to you. You know I'm a big fan of your work anyway. But look, I, when I looked at your title of your latest book, Permanent Distortion, I, I hear exactly what you're saying uh, to Karen and Jeff uh, about the disparity between Main Street and Wall Street as well. But I, I think there's a competence issue here. And I wonder if you've gone into this as well, because I know it's something you've thought about a lot as well, is the fact that the central banks are looking at the wrong parameters. I, I had a, a, a trade union once when there was a company collapsing said none of the analysts came and saw what we were doing at grassroots. Uh, and I'm very worried that central banks are looking at the wrong information with the wrong people uh, and trying to get the wrong reaction from the financial community rather than actually looking at what's going on on the, on the ground as well. And that's why they missed the fact that inflation wasn't transitory because they were looking at the wrong data with the wrong people wanting the wrong reaction. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Um, that that's an excellent point. And, and one of the reasons they considered real inflation transitory is because, again, for like 15 years, they've been expanding the, the money supply. They've been reducing rates. They've been buying debt. And that has allowed for more debt to be created. That's allowed for share buybacks. That's allowed for, for markets to rise um, far above the pace of the real economy, what real people experience. That, that hasn't really changed. What's changed is there's been a recognition that headline inflation is high. Not that there was an inflation of money going on for the past 15 years that increased um, in the wake of the pandemic by more than went into the real economy to help people during that pandemic. And so they are totally wrong-footed on this. I question what their economists are actually seeing, because when you do look at people's bills, when you do look at energy prices, when you do look at food costs, when you look at the basket of food costs, you know, your combination of milk, eggs, breads, and so forth, all of that has gone up. And yet they are focusing, as Powell is right now, on, on wages. Well, wages is what allows people to be able to afford those real prices that are going up for other reasons. And the Fed doesn't seem to acknowledge that. And even if you did look at um, that gap between what wages are and what those costs are, um, wages have not increased. Um, they, they've not kept up with inflation. And the Fed literally does not seem to be able Indeed. to comprehend this data. Yeah. And look, Nomi, uh, I'm no socialist. I'm a paid up full capitalist. But I say this because I actually think it's a disgrace. The, the, the thing is, w wages have kept up 
uh, with inflation. They've really kept up, but I'm afraid those wages are just in the C-suite. One of the most horrific statistics I ever come across, and I repeat on a regular basis, is the fact that in the 1960s, CEO pay compared to their median workers was 15 to 21 times. Now it is somewhere for an S&P 500 company in a, in a region of 320 times as well. So the slice of the pie for the C-suite has got fatter and fatter at the expense of their workers. We have to look to Wall Street, uh, no, not Wall Street, we have to look at the corporates more generally and the outrageous practices they've taken on over the last 20, 30 years to see where the other blame lies. Well, that's right. And, and, that, and, and that has been amplified by the fact that money has been so cheap and leverage has been so easy. Um, and that includes leverage by the central bank's own books. I mean, these are the Fed is the largest hedge fund in the world. Right. So um, the reality is all of this money has gone into um, a lot of these corporate individuals and, and, and to the top. And as you mentioned, the C-suite. And so when we do look at wages overall, yes, one component, one leverage you mentioned of them have have absolutely increased far beyond um anything sort of reasonable relative to the economy, relative to even their own companies um, and, and the profitability of those particular companies. So it has swooshed up to the top, whereas real wages for most of everyone else, especially with respect to real costs like food and fuel, have, have, have basically lagged behind. And again, the Fed does not seem to understand. And they certainly did not understand this on the way up. It has only been recently where they have sort of adopted this heroic stance against inflation with the idea, and this has been what happened all, all along the way in terms of them increasing their books and reducing rates, the idea that it's somehow going to help the real economy, Main Street, we need this, we take, you know, we take some pain now in order for a reward later or a stabilization later, but the reality is the rewards still um, go up towards the top and the transparency in the markets um, has been distorted as has prices throughout this entire period on the way up um, and also in this volatile period in the markets and also in some of the dips that we've seen um, throughout this year as rates have been increased. But I do believe that money is still there on the outside because that it has gone into these these pockets. There are companies waiting to do more share buybacks and do more deals when things stabilize. So when things stabilize will not be when the Fed cuts rates. It'll be when the Fed stops raising rates as quickly as it just has. Nomi, always good to catch up with you. Thanks so much for being with us. And we wish you the best for the new book, of course, Permanent Distortion. Um, you can read more of our U.S. economic coverage, including why Credit Suisse sees a Fed pivot sooner than expected on CNBC.com. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Right, let me just um, update you very briefly on the market. It's, it's a reiteration of kind of what we were saying yesterday. There is a mechanical move going on at the moment, uh, and, it, and it's very obvious to all of you practitioners of the market, and that is when the dollar comes down uh, and risk goes back on, then uh, we see the equity market rally quite strongly. We've seen it in the oil market as well. We've seen it in a whole host of assets as well. So the root of this, and I'll come to the dollar in a few moments time, is the fact that people are thinking, hang on a second, maybe it's not just the US central bank, which is serious about inflation. For a long time, I think there was a large question 
uh, about whether the ECB, the Bank of England, and certainly, certainly still those questions surrounding the Bank of Japan are, are, are at all serious about fighting the scourge of inflation. And as such, we're just seeing a little bit of a line in the sand being drawn on the negativity of the last few weeks as well. Uh, US indices have, have rallied four out of four sessions in a row. Energy, once again, uh, rallying fairly hard at one point in the session. And we've got down, as I said to you yesterday, to 87 bucks. We're back up to 94 now as well. Is that having effect on, on the Treasury yields ahead of this key CPI data later today? Uh, and the answer is no, actually. These are pretty much where they were um, 24 hours ago. I should probably say that some of you are brushing your teeth and listening rather than watching. So I should tell you you're doing whatever else you're doing this morning. It might not be morning for you, of course. It might be night times. You might just be coming in. In fact, you might be brushing your teeth after a night out. 3.3% uh, uh, is where the 10 years trading there as well. Stop digging, Stephen. 3.5% uh, is where the 30-year paper is trading, as indeed is the two-year give or take. So uh, let's move on to dollar crosses. And I'll just say to you a brief word or two uh, about the CPI data we're expecting today. Uh, a lessening of the headline figure from 8 5 down to 8.1% seems to be about the mean there as well. Uh, but you're going to still have a solidly higher core figure. And to remind you, core figures strip out a lot of the, the factors that have led us higher in the first place. Food, uh, energy, and then those heating costs as well. But it's still core. So lodging, other key factors that you and I still need uh, to live our lives as well. 6% still pretty much triple the longer term target from the Federal Reserve. So the dollar yen is still trading its extraordinary level of over 140, 142. And if you wonder why I say it's extraordinary level, have a look at any chart of the last five to 10 years uh, of the dollar yen as well. You will find it quite extraordinary as well, especially if you overlay that with what's been going on historically during that period as well. But whilst we've seen the euro rally back from its 99 handle up to 101, we've seen pound rally from 114 up to 117, give or take as well. Dollar yuan doesn't really move as much. We have seen the dollar remain near its highs against the yen because we haven't seen any aggression in terms of language from the BOJ as of yet. Who knows if we ever will. Right, we'll move on to the oil price. I mentioned the energy stocks rallied yesterday. They were the leading sector. Um, we, we, they keep trying to get a, a downtick on Brent. It's very interesting the last two days. We got down to 91.5 this time yesterday, and then it rallied up to 93. Then it got to 94, uh, and they took it down a buck first thing this morning when I woke up around about 3 a.m., uh, but now it's back up to 93.77. So um, WTI had an 85 handle. Brent had a 94 handle. Um, but it's still around the highs for Brent, but WTI has come off significantly from those lows and is now 87.67. Uh, Asian indices, what do they look like as we are? We have got the mainland Chinese markets back and the Hang Seng as well. We have solid but unspectacular gains across the board. Karen. We're watching UBS stock closely this morning. The company plans to hike its dividend by 10% to 55 cents per share. In its latest capital returns update, the Swiss lender also signalled it expects its share buyback program to top its $5 billion target by the end of the year, having already brought back or bought back more than $4 billion worth of shares this year. Uh, just a quick note on this, uh, we've been talking about fintech separately over the course of this year, valuations down aggressively. UBS only days ago announced it was not going to be taking over Wealthfront. This was a US robo-advisor. At $1.4 billion, it would have been its biggest acquisition since 2008. Now, it seems to have money, uh, freed up money for cash for shareholders. So the, the, I think we know where it came from. <laughs> well, this is a, a fascinating story because not, not only are we talking about UBS and this announcement this morning, which uh, UBS is obliged to do, I think, as part, part of its listing uh, regulations in, in Switzerland. But 
Um, we're also talking about Goldman Sachs, of course, uh, and not only Goldman Sachs, but other banks now in this season who are going to be laying off workers. And I think it's very interesting what UBS is doing here because this is a kind of a squaring of the wagons in terms of the balance sheet and that potential M&A that you talked about. But it is also a, 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 a plea to the shareholders to keep the faith and here's a bit more cash to keep you on side. And this is a chunky dividend increase that they're talking about here. And they're also talking about, and these are forward-looking statements, they're also talking about the desire for further buybacks running into next year here. So I think there's an there's a important message in here. We're going to keep on top of costs. We're not going to do any uh, wildly extravagant M&A at this point. We're going to hand back the money to you. And even as we do this, I think we're going to see a, a swathe of uh, job cutting across the investment banking industry as we see business activity in lots of areas contract. Why is this? Uh, many things you've said there. I'll just say briefly, why are yeah. we getting this announcement now? Second quarter earnings were on the 26th of July. Why yeah. are we hearing news about Divi and share buyback now of all times? It seems strangely out of cycle. The sequencing, the uh, deal that they had on the table was only revealed last week to have been terminated. So it was eight months in the making. Uh, they decided to, to walk away from it. So I gather in natural time, which is a very short period of time. Now they're updating the market on uh, the results of that cash. So natural question, what would you do with the 1.4 a large chunk of money? But, you know, to your point, Jeff, mm. I think there's a lot of uh, corporates out there who pay big money for advisory fees for the likes of UBS and Goldman Sachs. Mm. And you're right about the messaging here. Do what they say. Just mimic the behavior. And effectively, that is reduce costs, as you say. Mm. And perhaps walk away from some deals that have now been revalued because of the falling share price and valuations we've seen. Mm. Um, just on your second point, um, <laughs> about <laughs> Goldman Sachs, um, I, I never celebrate anyone, you know, um, having tougher times. Yeah. And I always find there's a very human element to these things as well. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing I will say is that if Goldman's thought that there was going to be a resumption of deal-making activity anytime soon, they wouldn't be letting go highly paid bankers who it is very difficult to hire in the first place because we know there's been a lot of competition, of course, for top talent on Wall Street and there always remains. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've seen too many times in the wake of the... 2008-2011 financial crisis and before that, back after the dot-com bubble burst as well, senior bankers being laid off only at a later stage when bankers realise actually things aren't as bad as they thought to having to be scrambling around trying to get them back on board again as well. So that's actually, I think, the message of intent about where they see the medium term is actually very interesting from Goldman's. Yeah, and it's a lovely thread through the start of the programme this morning because this is effectively what Nomi Prince was talking about here the financialization of the global economy and there being two sets of people who are benefiting or not benefiting from the central bank largesse we've had from 2008 here. And I guess what Nomi Prince is suggesting perhaps is that, or what we're suggesting, is that there may be a, a significant correction now going on here. But whether the, the central banks have got the strategy right at this stage remains to be seen, doesn't it? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.